Welcome to the Philosopher, Monk, and Mystic Podcast, where we reflect on wisdom for modern life from ancient philosophy and spiritual traditions. Each episode is based on timeless principles and practices designed to help you live your highest good. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you for listening. Many of the listeners of this podcast know us from the In Search of Wisdom podcast, where we interview authors and leading thinkers on a variety of topics. We started the Philosopher, Monk, and Mystic podcast for two reasons. First, to share short reflections or reminders, if you will, to start your day with timeless principles on living the good life, but also to have occasional casual conversations with fellow curious minds on wisdom and and life. And today's episode is one of those conversations. My guest is Brandon Tumblin, the host of the Strong Stoic Podcast, a deep and interesting guy. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. So notes from the underground... I'm going to read this opening line that you sent me down this path here. I'm a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. You got to you got to give us a little intro to this book that you call uh one of your favorites, maybe your favorite book. Yeah, this got to be on the list, man. Like top probably top 1, but maybe top 3. Uh but yeah, it's uh, one of my favorite books. Um how I like to describe it to people is like Imagine the most bitter, resentful, angry person you can imagine that's just hates society, hates himself, hates life. That's what this book is about. And so Dostoevsky, who was a Russian author back in the uh, 1800s, he basically wrote this book to embody all of the bad parts of humanity. And that's that's what's and you know, I mean, I know I know you're you you're reading it now and uh, I've read it several times and like I feel like he did a really great job. Um, and the start of that, I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. It just sets the scene for the whole book, right? It's like, okay, this guy, like, it, like that, like I, I couldn't think of a better way to start this book because it's like, you know, he's just he's he's admitting right from the start, uh, you know, that that he is spiteful and thinks himself unattractive and he's sick, and uh, and so the book is basically just him. You know, he the, there's there's two parts, and it's a very short book, by the way, for people who are actually interested in reading. It's very short, but the first part he's basically talking about his ideas about life, and um, and he's very contradictory, right? And then the the second part of the book basically confirms all the things that he talked about in the first part of the book, being that he is bitter, being that he is angry, resentful, he's contradictory, and he's he's very irrational. So. Uh, yeah, again, one of my one of my favorite books of all time, and I'm uh, I'm excited to get into it. Good stuff. Me too. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on the, on the book. I, I I was not super familiar with it um, prior to you recommending it to me. Um, but I looked up and I saw, and who knows how accurate it is, but it, it was a list of Pope Francis's like kind of like top five books. You know, it was a short list, and this was one of the ones that was on the list. What do you think Dostoevsky uh, wants the reader to take a, take away from this? It's tough to 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 really get clear on you know what I mean what the what the goal is behind the book. Yeah, you know, I think Dostoevsky really just wanted like so. One of the things that people struggle with all the time, probably one of probably the biggest thing people struggle with is recognizing your own evil, recognizing your own inadequacies, and. Some people are overconscious of their evil. Some people are severely underconscious. But I think either way, most people, most of us do things all the time that we don't recognize that we do. We have these little spiteful impulses. We have these bitter thoughts, these resentful thoughts. And we just think, okay, yeah, no, that's just the way it is. And we don't link it to the actual emotion or the actual actual toxicity that it comes from. And so what I think Dostoevsky really wanted to do was write a book where you read the book and you feel terrible because you relate to the villain. 
And so you're reading about, because he gets really psychologically deep into how he's feeling about things. And so in reading it, you're, you know, I mean, and I, I'd love to hear what, what you thought about it. But for me, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like I've thought these things before. You know, I've been in this position before. And and it doesn't make you feel good about yourself because, again, the character is bitter, angry, resentful, spite, just the worst miserable person you can imagine. So it doesn't make you feel good about yourself. But what it does do is it makes you recognize your own evil and your own bitterness. And that is very helpful because if you don't recognize those things, there's no way you can actually ex- extinguish it, right? And I found it interesting how he's talking about this idea of of the intellectual or the reflective, this, you know, that critically kind of that he's painting himself as this, uh, the underground man, if you will. Um, but I'm curious, you know, in terms of your thoughts and in his, which there's no way to know, but you know, the percentage of, of how many people are fall into, to maybe this category that he's referring to of this reflective. And I, I completely, resonate with that of you know there is a bit of a of a torture from that may come from anna you know there's obviously good and bad and everything but uh but what are your what are your thoughts there yeah well i suppose it's sort of linked to uh consciousness isn't it right because and actually he talks of that consciousness and intelligence which are somewhat somewhat the same thing but yeah he basically his whole idea is that if you the, the more conscious you are the more of a, I guess, parasite you are to yourself. And he had this crazy idea along the same lines that the more intelligent a person is, the less likely they are to act or the less they act. And so he, he divided people into two categories, based, you know, broadly speaking, people of action and people of intelligence. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be either. I don't want to be just one of those. I want to be both. I want to be smart and I want to be someone who can actually act. And his whole idea was that, you know, the, the reason for this was if you are a really conscious person and if you are really intelligent, you're going to think about everything in detail. You're not just going to act, right? Like if you're faced with a moral dilemma, an ethical dilemma, and you're really intelligent, you're going to sit there and you're going to go, okay, well, if I do that, then this person hurts. If I do this and the other person's going to get going to get stung. So like, I don't know what the right answer is, you know, and you're probably going to spend a lot of time actually contemplating on what the right response is. Whereas if you're just a man of action, if you are convicted, like you have this conviction with you, which is like, I know what the right answer is. You're not going to think about it. You're just going to act. And again, I, I don't think it's like black and white. Like I think we're all sort of on this spectrum, but it's, there's certainly truth there that the, the more, the more you are able to consider complexity in the world, the less likely you are to act right away because you need time to actually go through that uh, complexity. It Reading that, it definitely made me think of um, just the uncertainty or I think of this image of like crystal ball gazing of I'm going to do this particular action and it's going to lead to X, Y, Z. But, you know, that parable of... Uh, kind of the maybe yes, maybe no, where, you know, the, uh, the horse and the guy with his son and the, uh, you know, that they, they lose the horse and people come by and say, Oh, that's so terrible. And maybe yes, maybe no. And, and the story continues and it's, you know, you just don't know the future and it's a bit complex of these second and third order effects of things. Um, you know, do you think that's where it was, was heading with that? Yeah, I think it's, I think in, in, in some ways, but, uh, you know, like, you know, cause I've thought about this quite a bit and I think, I think like anything that you read in this book, when you're reading this particular thing, you see yourself as both, right? Like you see yourself as both the intelligent person and as the man, the, the, the completely unconscious person that's acting, right? Cause we're all, we're all a little bit in between. And certainly I, you know, I do th- like, if you think about in your personal life, I'm sure you can imagine some people that are men of action and they're very effective at what they do. Like I know people like this. They, they don't, they don't think about things. They just do it. And they're very successful and they're very, you know, like they, they get, they get shit done. It's as simple as that. And I know other people who are really, really intelligent and they just can't act. 
and and so they're left into this this void of uh really it's an ego thing too right because it's like oh i'm so intelligent and because i'm intelligent that means i can't do anything and that's sort of what this underground man was was really was really uh, uh wrestling with because he was a failure in life this is the interesting thing he was a f- absolute failure even by his own definition and so one of the ways that he justified that to himself which we always justify our inadequacies to ourselves, is he said that, well, I'm really intelligent, therefore, of course I can't act. Of course I can't do anything good in the world because I'm so intelligent. When you think about this, the the path of the, the spiteful man and maybe the polar opposite of that, of, of the path of, of the sage or like the, you know, the virtuous path, I was kind of wondering of, you know, the, the Stoics have this idea of, you know, the sage is very rare. Like once every 500 years, you know, there's a sage. Um, is this spiteful man kind of the extreme or is this, you know, kind yeah. of just much more common and easier path to, to go down? No, it's it's the extreme. And actually... Yeah. I know, uh, I know you, you got a few pages left in the book, but the, I'm going to spoil it for you a little bit. The, the, one of the last lines that he says in the book is, uh, something like I've taken to completion only that which you have taken halfway. And what he meant by that was I am the most bitter. I am the most angry, resentful person. And you've only dared to think about this halfway. You're only halfway there. And it wasn't really like a challenge, like, you know, I dare you to become more bitter and resentful, but, but it was, it was Dostoevsky's way of saying, this is, this is the extreme. This is the, uh, antichrist, antichrist, so to speak, right? The anti-sage. This is like, <laughs> this, like, you know, cause a philosophy will put you towards something and it'll take you away from something. This is not what you want to be going towards. This is the thing you want to be going away from, right? <laughs> but, but it does seem more common than, than maybe once every 500 years that, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I was thinking in terms of everyday examples, you know, you have somebody cut you off in traffic, you know, there might be a spiteful thought that comes. You don't necessarily have to act on it. You can, you know, let that go and, and transition to a, to a kinder thought, but it, it doesn't negate the fact that, that, you know, that spiteful thought and thoughts can come. Right. Yeah. You can, I, I personally don't think you can avoid it. Like I, I, in a sense, I disagree with the Stoics on this is I don't think there is ever a sage. I don't think there's ever that, that perfect person. I, I, I just, I don't think it's, it ever exists. And by definition to me anyway, in my head, how I think about it is if there was a sage, that's a deity. That's a God at that point. That's not, that's not a human being, right? Um, now, certainly you can, you can imagine that, like, you know, there's people, you know, I'm sure we've all worked with people, maybe our bosses, if we're lucky enough that are just seemingly perfect, but we're only seeing a little bit of them. We're not seeing what they're like when they go home. We're not seeing what they're like to the other employees. We're only, you know, we're only seeing them. And I, and I've had bosses like this where it's like, they never make a mistake. They never get angry. They never raise their voice. They always deal with conflict so in such a, an appropriate way. And so to me, they are a, a quote, quote, sage. But that's not really a reflection of the reality of who they actually are, right? That You're seeing one little piece of it. That, that's an interesting thing of, um, I guess it, def- it depends on your definition of the, of the sage, which I'm, I'm sure that's what Seneca or, you know, the, the other Stoics are maybe talking about. But I wonder from like a Pope Francis standpoint or, you know, some of the early mystics or, or saints, they may look at it a little differently of this person, you know, this underground man understanding their wretchedness, mm-hmm. being a bit of the path of or part of the the sage it's like you know i think of um you know young or something in terms of that that shadow it's you know in, in the integration of it you know whatever that means um but i don't know do you see any connection in terms of uh yeah this is a is a bit us 
a bit of the shadow side and in maybe the uh path is some integration or accepting of it yeah i mean absolutely i think uh i think that is the path like to get back to that carl young idea you know up until carl young the whole idea was the christian idea which is you know you you don't do any sins you have to you have to repent for so to speak and and that really the goal was perfection like the goal was to be a sage the goal was to be uh, a full representation of the ideology ideology of christ but uh carl jung came up with this idea that well no that's actually not what we should be aiming for what we should be aiming for is wholeness and you can't be whole without your dark side and so he wasn't saying you know be 50 percent bitter and be 50 percent you know very nice and a good person like he wasn't saying that he wasn't saying that you flourish in your evil but what he he was saying was is that you have to recognize that and accept that as being a part of uh of 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 you of you and the greatest um uh image he has of this is like a tree that you know you shine a light on a tree it casts a shadow it's like you can't have that shadow without the light and and really without the light the, the shadow just it just doesn't exist. And so that that was his idea. And so it wasn't that like, again, you accept those parts of you and you become half bitter and you're like, but you, you have to properly integrate it into your life such that you can actually, uh, I guess, channel it into a way that it's not destructive on your life. Seems very challenging. <laughs> it the, is. The uh, something that sticks out at me from the from the book is. It's definitely, as you mentioned, extreme talking about, I could not even become an insect. You know what I mean? He, he comes with these extreme oh, yeah. type of things. I, I listened to the um, some of it on audio, on Scribd, and the, the narrator, awesome for it. <laughs> it was like really funny, funny book um, as well. But he asked the question after that, can a person of perception respect themselves at all yeah and that's that's really like uh again that, that embodiment of bitterness isn't it it's like i like i am a failure i am a spiteful man an unattractive man a sick man like i am the worst possible version of myself can i respect myself knowing that you know and i guess carl Jung's response to that would be Yes, if you're able to control it and not have it negatively affect your life, if you can, you know, strive for virtue. Because the other side of that is like, yes, okay, we all have evil within us. The other side of that is we all have good within us as well. And so you you manifest the good in you and then the bad in you, you can sort of find it, at the very least, make it not have an effect on your life. Hopefully you can channel it. And I'll give you a, a great example for me personally. I've always had aggression issues. Right. Like when I was a kid, I was very aggressive. When I was a teenager, I was very aggressive. I don't know why. I guess I just had a lot of testosterone. I don't know what it was, but I was always very naturally aggressive. And so if you are someone who struggles with that, one of the ways you can channel that uh, so that it doesn't negatively impact your life is when you become, when you feel that urge, you just walk away. You don't take it out on someone else. You walk away. Now, that's just neutralizing it. What I've done in my personal life is I gained a passion for strength training. So I go into the gym and I channel my aggression through strength training. And so in doing so, it's not only neutralizing its effect, but it's providing a benefit to my life because it's making me physically stronger and, and giving me exercise and challenging me. And so, because again, I, I feel like this is so hard to conceptualize, you know, cause you say make, you know, use your evil for good and all this stuff. And it's like, what the hell do you mean by that? How is that even possible? Like, but that's, that's an example that I think most people can understand. And I think a lot of people can actually do that. And I think a lot of people do do that. Right. Is it also more to it than that though? Like I wonder from a philosophy of life perspective, I'm assuming you have greater clarity around, you know, ethics and, and what, what you you see to be right um you know in terms of developing the mind of being able to to reason you know i think about like um like for example a, a thing of of anger you know you get this 
spiteful thing coming coming down as the underground man like how do you make sense of that you know without a philosophy of life and that you know whether it's that strength training as as kind of part of that you know entire kind of philosophy of life but you know i wonder like how do you make sense of that in terms of um if you think about like the nature of virtue and vice and what you kind of mentioned earlier of, you know, we're all capable of, of evil. I don't know. It can be very difficult. Like if you, you know, how do you, how do you process that? If somebody cuts you off, there's gotta be something that as these thoughts come, you know, you process it. What what do you think? If can you think of any examples of maybe where you've navigated that? It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. And, I find, you know, because I've been thinking about this book too, and he talks about spite a lot. And I think spite is one of the sneakiest toxic emotions that we experience. Um, Because it's easy to know when you're angry, right? You get pissed off in traffic, you screech, you yell. It's like, okay, I'm angry. But spite is very subtle. You know, we all know like uh, if you've been around a child and you 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 know they spilled something on the they spilled their water or something you're like you know you better clean that up while they're cleaning it up they're going to be like no now i don't want to clean i was going to clean it up but now i don't want to like that is spite so it's and this is again one of the hardest things to recognize in yourself at least for me personally and i think it's true for everyone and it makes sense why dostoevsky really focused on spite in the book that much it's because it's so subtle and i'll give you an example from my own life is that you know, like in the past, if I messaged uh, a friend to go out, uh, and again, I, I'm going to be clear, I'm not, I'm not proud of this moment at all, right? I don't feel good about this, but again, we're talking about Dostoevsky here, so in the underground man, but you know, so uh, you know, I messaged a friend, and I was in the city for work, and I said, hey, like, you know, I'm I'm available on Friday or Saturday. Let's go out and have have uh, a dinner or drinks, and and I know these friends, like I know I'm not perfect, I'm not fully self aware, but like this particular friend. I know, I know we're friends and and we, we go out all the time. We have great time. Like this isn't like someone I just met. Like, you know, there's an established relationship here and I know that they're really busy as well, but sure enough, he just didn't respond for a day. So I was like, okay, well it's been, you know, like what's going on here. And then he finally responded. He said, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go out Friday. And then I noticed this weird thing in my head, which was spite, which was, I don't know if I want to go out with you now. And it's like, and it, you know, it, it took me like a couple hours to recognize, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why am I not, why, am, why don't I want to go out? Like, what's the real reason? Is it because no, there's no other reason. It's literally spite. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like, I'm not proud of this stuff, but at the end of the day, I think that took me so long to recognize in my sp- myself, anger, easy, even bitterness is difficult sometimes, but spite when you don't do things or when you do things out of spite, very, very, very hard to recognize. Yeah. When I think of uh, spite, which isn't often, that's not a not a word that generally comes up all the time. It, it connects, I guess, with uh, resentment to me or it sounds lasting. It's not, I kind of have this visual of a of a backpack people carrying around. It's like spite. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that. I'm going to hold, you know, where anger which is obviously a you know a, a negative emotion and Seneca writes quite a quite a bit about it you know he calls it a short madness where it's you know it, it's it's coming and it's and it's going we want to avoid it but spite or resentment it feels like it's something I'm I'm gonna hold on to this I'm gonna tuck this away um yeah which I I think of forgiveness and things like that which is not always how people want to think about it or maybe the the best way to think about it but something along the lines of letting go or you know taking off that backpack at the end of the day of, of these uh you know spiteful things or or whatever it may be like how do you think about uh, yeah. a, a, avoiding this and, and and letting go yeah i mean it is it is again it's really tough and i, I think I think you're onto something. I haven't thought about that too much, but I think you're right in that anger is sort of this, this brief thing. And then, but I think they're connected, right? Like, um, you know, Yoda said in star Wars, cause I'm a huge nerd, uh, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. 
hate leads to suffering. And mm-hmm. I thought about that for like 10 years. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like I didn't understand what this meant for like 10 years. And I guess what I realized is that, you know, anger comes out of fear normally, you know, like in the past when I've gotten angry, normally it's because, um, I feel like I've been in, I feel like someone's judging my intelligence or I feel like, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid. So you can trace back anger to fear. And this makes sense. Like in a survival situation, you know, if you, you get angry, you get aggressive is because you you fear for your life. Right now, anger again, like you mentioned, it's sort of the short lived experience, but if you give into that anger over time, you're going to start being hateful and you're, you're, you're going to hate the thing that causes you to be angry. You know, for example, um, if, uh, you know, if you, if there's someone, uh, if you have a bear, for example, in a survival situation, you get, you get afraid and you get aggressive and you, you, uh, you scare the bear off and you're on a hiking trip and you're there for a week. And every day you have that same experience where this bear comes up, terrifies you, you get angry, aggressive, and then, but you scare the bear off and you survive by day seven, you're going to hate that bear. You're going to absolutely hate that bear. And then on the the final stage of that is what Yoda called suffering. And to me, that's like, that's where all those, like the resentment and the bitterness and the hate and the constant state of anger, that's where that sort of manifests itself. Uh, and so I, I know that was a slight tangent, but like, I think all these things are connected. Like, and I do think you're right. I think spite is something that we just hold on to. It's something that we put in our backpack and eventually it's just way too much. Like to get back to that example I mentioned earlier, if my friend didn't get back, like what changed for me? I wanted to go out with my friend and have a drink and talk with him. That's what I wanted. I enjoy his company. Whether or not he was busy that day, couldn't respond, whether or not he just didn't want to respond, whether or not he even wants to come out with me, let's say he doesn't like me, doesn't want to come out with me. Why does that change the fact that I want to go see him. Like now, yeah, you could say, well, you don't want to spend time with someone who doesn't want to spend time with you. Fair enough. But at the same time, that's like a practical element of it. That's not, that doesn't change what I wanted. I'm just a little embarrassed because he didn't want that too. You see what I'm saying? So again, it gets back to what you say, empty your damn backpack, like adopt forgiveness. Yeah. The, um, one of the quotes I, I really like from Dostoevsky is um, the greatest happiness to, is to know the source of unhappiness. When you mention the, the suffering, it's like, to me, this story, this is, this is suffering. You know, the underground man, this is what suffering is. Um, and then it's like, okay, what what is this source? What would you say if you had to sum it up in a a few things, you know, the source of, of unhappiness. The source of unhappiness. Jeez. Um, I guess it would, it would be not taking responsibility for yourself. I, I think that's where it stems, you know, cause again, like the, the, like the underground man wasn't something that he didn't just spring into existence. Like he talks about when he was younger and he thought, you know, he had this ego problem and, uh, you know, he often took advantage of, of people that he worked with. And, uh, but it was something that sort of built up over, over the years, right? It, he didn't, he, he didn't just spring into existence. And I think that's where it is. I think that's one of the points he was trying to make as well in, in the story is that this stuff, like the source of unhappiness, it's not like one thing. It's like all these little things that you ignore, all these little responsibilities that you choose to ignore, or maybe in some ways the responsibilities that you choose to take on that you don't need, such as holding a grudge. Like that, like when you hold a grudge, you are responsible for that. That is something like what, how do you define something that you're responsible for? Whether or not you carry the burden. If you're carrying spite, if you're carrying resentment, that you're, you're voluntarily taking on that responsibility. What can you replace that with? Forgiving. You can replace that with doing things for other people. You can replace that with volunteering, being kind. Revenge. It's still a load. 
Revenge, great, great one <laughs> which, as well. No, and it's may, true. Which may, like initially, I want you think of of revenge as transcending that suffering, but it's like I, I like the quote from um, Seneca or something like, "Would you return a kick to a mule or something like that?" Um, yeah, you know, kind of against revenge. You know, and revenge doesn't. You know, it's counterintuitive to to happiness. Yeah. It, it I mean, not counterintuitive, solve it doesn't, doesn't lead to happiness, I guess would be. Yeah, well, it's certainly, and, and again, it, it really begs the question, too, like, at what level of revenge can you no longer forgive yourself, right? Yeah. And that's really the hard question, too, because, you know, you can, I'm in, in my head, I'm just thinking like Punisher, right? Like, just like <laughs> full on revenge. But, you know, the interesting thing about that example uh, is that when he took his revenge, he didn't feel, it's not like his suffering was alleviated. It just got worse. That's the thing. It's like, when you choose to take revenge on someone you're not you're not alleviating your own suffering you're just causing more for everyone else and now that is also your burden now you also have to deal with not the fact that they hurt you but the fact that you hurt them and again you're taking responsibility for that burden um yeah yeah for sure i guess it's the point around the question he poses in there i wrote down do we really only ever desire you know what is good for us um, you know, obviously leading to no, our, our desires are not, you know, always what's good for us, which is a strange, strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it... Another quote he like, he, he says is like, what, what is hell? I maintain that, that suffering is being unable to love. Which I'm really fascinated in terms of love as a as a skill or, or something that you grow and develop, just like being you know virtuous. Um, maybe we don't know how to be virtuous. It, it it takes a bit, and even if you set out on that path, like as we were talking about, the sage is very very rare. It can be very difficult. But this idea of being able to love is not necessarily how we think about it often. I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of reflect. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily think of um, not knowing how to love or that being a skill that needs to be cultivated. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, you know, when people practice gratitude, that's really what you're practicing, right? You're practicing the art of of loving something that you already have. And I think, you know, uh, not <laughs> not to get too corny, but... I do genuinely believe that love connects everything you do in life. Like if you were to, if you were to make a pie of the important things in life, one of them is probably your work, meaningful work should probably be working at something you love. Right. The other thing is your partner, your romantic relationship. You should probably love them. What else? Your kids, your family, your friends, the people around you, your community, like, the center of that pie is literally love to me. And the opposite of that, the inverse of that would be the center of that pie being hate. And I think that's what motivates people in hell to get back to your quote with Dostoevsky. It's like the underground man. He's the center of everything he does is hate. And it is literally the opposite of love. And that, that is literally hell. Hell is Jordan Peterson said too. hell is a, Hell is suffering and knowing that you are the cause of your own suffering, mm. you know, and that that's literally the underground man, right? Yeah. When, when you think about, um, to stay on like this path of, of love, I guess, like I'm thinking of, of Nietzsche, this Amor Fati, the love of fate type of thing. And it's, if we were talking about this underground man, it's like we have the underground man in us and the the sage as two, two poles, you know, how do you love, I mean, do you see it's, um, you know, I wonder what young would say in terms of like loving the shadow, like loving, not just to merely accept, 
you know, the, the sinner in us or however term you'd want to put to it, but loving the both. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I don't know what Young would say, but for me, it's like you love the shadow because without the shadow, you can't have the light. And so it's, 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 it's accepting it as sort of like a byproduct of having the light, but it's also, it's also necessary. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, but if you think about that from a, um, like nightly journal type of thing, like call yourself to account, like reflect on your day, you know, this love of fate, making mm-hmm. mistakes, conduct, you know, acting in a way that you're not proud of getting excited about it, like loving it. Like thinking about that is, you know, if you yeah. think about like Seneca in terms of some of the stuff of, of, uh, it's really surprising, I think, at least for me and probably for a lot of people of this, not necessarily getting too worried about the mistakes. Like, why should I worry about mistakes? I'm the one that can forgive myself and, and learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It's like loving love, love of fate in terms of loving maybe the bad things that you do that you're not proud of. Yeah. I mean, the love of fate thing is an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, and I've, I've been sort of contemplating this along with, along with Providence because it it is a weird thing. It's like, you know, it seems so weird because it's like, okay, what do you mean? You just love everything that happens to you? Like even the bad things, even the bad things you do, you know, but I think what the Stoics would say is that there's a precondition to loving your fate. And the precondition is that you are living virtuously. And part of living virtuously is, you know, doing your best, understanding that you're not perfect. But, you know, that is certainly a precondition to loving one's fate. Like, like the Stoics would never say you should, um, uh, you know, you should necessarily, uh, you know, love yourself if you're not being virtuous, if you're not living by Stoic values. In the same way they say, you know, like, you shouldn't, People always say Stoics shouldn't have emotions and shouldn't experience positive emotions. That's not what the Stoics say. They they just think that positive emotion is like on the back burner. Like, you know, you, you you be virtuous first, and that's the most important thing, and then you put the joy on the back burner. But they would never say not to be joyous. You know, um, so you know, Stoicism. Uh, I know that. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but no, Stoicism is one of those things where it's like it's so simple, yet it's so bloody complicated. And I think so many people Google Stoicism and then they say, this is going to be me now. I'm going to be a Stoic. It's like, well, hold on a minute. You don't even really know what that means. (laughs) And I encourage you to figure out what that means. But be very careful of calling yourself anything, you know. Well, I wonder if the underground man is this idea that it's, um, you know, I think of the book like The Practicing Stoic or whatever it may be, you know, you're never really it's, or, you know, in Christianity or many different things kind of coming to the realization, yeah, I'm I'm a sinner or, you know, Seneca in terms of the journal, like everybody has a, um, you know, our shortfalls that, you know, the sage, as, as you said, um, which, you know, I think I agree with is it, it doesn't necessarily exist. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously but, there's, yeah, people that can come, you know, I mean, there are just un unbelievably amazing people that, you know, do amazing things, but also probably have a, you know, couple things that where they fall, fall short on and, uh, all of that along the way. Yeah. Well, actually I just, I just spoke with, uh, uh, Naya, who's a psychologist, <clears throat> excuse me. And she said that, uh, she said that without flaws, you can't even know that you're virtuous. I was like, that's a good point. And that gets back to the Carl Jung idea too. It's like, if, if you don't have any flaws, you're just, you're not really virtuous, are you? You're just you. You're like a teddy bear. You're just soft just because you're soft. You're fluffy, you're warm, but it's not, you didn't overcome anything. Whereas if you naturally have flaws, if you're naturally inclined to be bitter and resentful and angry, which I think a lot of us are because we share the same existential problems, but you can overcome that, 
that's where the virtue is found. And so it's not just that like without virtue there, you know, without the light, there is no shadow, but it's, it's that as well. It's that unless you have something to overcome, how can you call yourself virtuous? Do you think Dostoevsky is talking about, you know, the, the flip side of the underground man, the person that maybe doesn't have a set of virtues or values or anything kind of running in the, the background? You know, there is no philosophy of life type of thing, which is which is probably for, for many of us. And obviously there's different degrees of clarity of of what that is. But you think in terms of reflecting on your day to use that same example, you know, you have a journal, like where's the measuring stick that you're comparing your actions against, you know, if there isn't a virtue or, or values that you're, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's a wonderful point. And that's why I think, uh, people do need to have something to aim at, you know, and I think for a long time, religion filled that hole and, it seems like we're in search of something to replace that. Stoicism seems to be a a, a a pretty good replacement, but you're absolutely right. Like it it gets down to the simple fact that if you don't know, you know, because so far we spoke a lot about you have to know who you are, right? You have to know your flaws. You have to know your dark side. You have to know your good side, but you also need to know where you're going. And that's, that's the point that you just made. It's like you, you need to know where you're going. You need an ideal. Now, an interesting idea that Nietzsche had was that the man who has an ideal but can't find his way to that ideal, he will behave more viciously than the one who doesn't even have an ideal. That's something seriously worth considering, too. Yeah, say that one more time, if you would. So Nietzsche said that the man who has an ideal but he can't possibly imagine how he could get to that ideal— he is going to live more more evilly than the man who doesn't even have an ideal. Meaning, if you don't have any hope that you can get better, if you don't have any hope that you can possibly become what you want to become in life, you're just going to throw it all in the trash and you're just going to live evilly, probably again to get back to spite and resentment and bitterness that you can't become your ideal. Does that connect at all for you with this idea of um, the underground man, it's he, he's talking, he can't even be lazy, you know, yeah. I found that, like confusing. It's like, um, you know, it's something around, but it makes me think of a little bit of, if you back to the philosophy of life, if you, you know, identify some values or virtues, oftentimes you're come to the realization that it's very difficult to actually, you know, carry those out consistently. You know, it can be very frustrating, yeah. annoying, humbling. I guess it depends on how you process that. Um, right. You know, but but what do you think about that? Um, you know, I can't even be a lazy man. Does that connect at all? Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Because really what he's saying is he is worse than a lazy man. Uh, yeah, there, there is. I never made that connection before, but I think you're right. Is that you know? Is it he's because saying, he knows better? I would say a lazy man doesn't do anything because they are just lazy. They just are. But the underground man knows better. He's smart. He's intelligent. Yet he doesn't. So he's worse. Yeah, that's a great connection, man. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the, there was definitely a number of lines in there where it's, uh, yeah, kind of head head scratchers. It's haunting. This, um, yeah, it's this weird thing of uh, so many, so many things that are either polarities or you know paradoxes around this stuff. Like one of the books I like, um, you know, to mention Pope Francis again, something that he, one of the first books he came out with. Um, is the name of God is mercy. And it's um, whether you're a believer or not, and every, everything like that. But some of the things he talks about is like, you know, the path to that is examining your own wretchedness, 
which is like uh, why it connects with this book and in you know if there's any truth to it being you know one of the five books that you know that he uh that he really likes it, it is definitely a deal of examining your own wretchedness which doesn't necessarily make sense unless you can think of this both and thing of yes you know you're absolutely perfect the way you are and there's a few things you need to work on <laughs> yeah well and I, I would say just to extend on that a little bit because eric newman who was a student of carl Jung, he actually had a theory on why that was so harmful uh that is not recognizing your own evil so there's like repression right which is you're conscious of it you know you know you're you do evil but you just uh you know you just ignore it but you're conscious of it you're aware of it but he thought that if you did that long enough eventually it would go into your subconscious and so what would actually end up happening is that you would be doing evil and you wouldn't know you're doing evil and this this seems so crazy for people to understand but like we see it all the time right you see it you see this in the mob all the time in this collective unconscious you see people that do evil all the time and they don't see it as being evil an example nazi germany what eric newman believed happened psychologically in nazi germany is that the german people repressed and suppressed their evil so much to the point where they weren't even recognizing it anymore and what happens in repression and suppression of your evil is you scapegoat it, meaning you put it on someone else. And I'm sure you know people, you know, people in relationships that say, oh, no, I'm perfect. She's doing everything wrong or he's doing everything wrong. It's like, hold on a minute now. How likely is that? Pretty damn low. It's very likely that you're doing something bad and you're not conscious of it. So you're scapegoating. You're saying it's all you. And so, like, to, to get back to uh, what Pope Francis said there about, like, recognizing your own wretchedness, it's it's necessary because we've seen the results if we don't do that individually. The Holocaust, Soviet Russia, Mao's China, all these examples of just horrible things where we group people into their, we put people into their group identity and then we persecute them based on that and literally kill them and torture them. So it's it's... It's vitally important. And just to give some context for people who maybe don't know Carl Jung and Eric Newman, this would have been like post-World War II, right? So they like they were in the stages of psychologically trying to figure out what the hell happened, which we still are, to be fair, right? When you put that to this notes of the underground, you know, what, what do you think would be... Um if you think back to the first time you, you read this, you know, what are maybe a couple steps, a couple takeaways that help lead you to, to the other pole, you know, to, to, a, to the good life, to the life of, of virtue, transcending suffering? Like, yeah. how do you make that, that leap or that couple steps that direction? Well, you know, again, I would say the first thing is you got to really understand your own evil. And I think the book does that very, very well, right? Like, again, like if you're reading this book, you should feel like the underground man a little like, you know, hopefully you're not as bad, but you should recognize some of the bad things within you. And and again, that's that's the first step. And then in terms of how to deal with it, you know, it just gets back, it just gets down to practice and it gets down to you know, having a little bit of sympathy for yourself in terms of how fast you're able to do it, you know, because again, like spite, for example, took me like 25, 26 years to notice in myself. Now I can probably do it a little bit quicker, but like, again, the first time, like 25 years, like that's crazy. And a great example of this is anger. When you, you, you mentioned getting angry in, in traffic, it's like, okay, what, what should you do? You should not get angry in traffic. That's a pretty high standard, right? Okay, yeah. What do you do first? Next time you get angry in traffic, I want you to think and be conscious of when you recognize that you are angry. That's the first step. Okay, I am angry now. That time, the more you practice recognizing that you're getting angry and recognizing that you're doing something that you probably shouldn't be doing, the more you practice that, that window is going to get smaller and smaller where you're going to be in traffic and you're, and someone's going to cut you off and you're going to say, 
screw this guy. And then you go like, oh, I'm getting angry. And then after that, you start working on things to how, on how to actually, uh, bring yourself down from that. And there's lots of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in, in therapy, but you know, just, just deep breathing helps. Like it's very simple, right? But the whole, it, it really gets down to practice and it really gets down to like the first time you recognize that in yourself, it's not going to be good. You're not going to feel good about yourself. You're going to think it took me five minutes to recognize that I am really angry. Meanwhile, my wife is here. And she's feeling horrible because I'm getting mad at her. But it took me, and it took me five full minutes to recognize this. It's not going to make you feel good. But maybe the next time, it's four minutes and 59 seconds. And that's how you make sure that you're on the right path. You're getting better over time. That's, that's such an interesting point, the, just the idea of, of um, noticing. Like it makes me think of... Um just some of the Eastern tradition type of stuff. Like you mentioned some of the um, misinterpretation maybe of stoicism, but maybe the same thing happens around meditation and things like that of thinking about getting rid of negative emotions, which it's not, it's just about noticing and becoming aware and not getting attached or, you know, putting a judgment and an action to that, which is similar of what Seneca talks about it as well or, or victor frankel you know that space type of thing um yeah you may not be able to control obviously you know in terms of emotion but noticing it um you know is the is the point what do you are you familiar with um mark manson and uh you know obviously popular author type of stuff but i think his second book is everything is effed are you mm-hmm. familiar with that one at all I'm, I haven't read his books. I'm vaguely familiar with his sort of general philosophy. Yeah. I've heard him uh, in several podcast episodes. Yeah, yeah. I think you would love that that book. Um, but it, it's it's kind of at least it connects with me to the best of my understanding of um, you know he kind of writes about pain you know and suffering as a bit of a like universal constant and. Um, you know, it's our, our perception and our expectations kind of um, warp it. Like he says something along the lines of like, you know, finding the this beautiful sky, you know, and looking up and then us getting thoughts of and imagining like just enough clouds coming in to disappoint it, you know, which we all yeah. understand like this negativity bias type of thing. But I don't know. I think it does help to understand a, a bit of the wiring, which I think um, the underground man is talking about this kind of like cause that we can cause ourselves some suffering. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, uh, you know, along those same lines, because and maybe this is a good time to bring up a, a sort of philosophical narcissism. But another point that the underground man made was that if we were able to build utopia, the first thing we would do is tear the damn thing down. And that's, that's a very scary idea to contemplate. You know, if we could get things so perfect, he, you know, he, he, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like, if we could make a world so beautiful that all you had to do was eat your favorite cakes and copulate and make new people. The first thing we would do is rip it down, destroy it all. Just, because we want to prove that we are human beings just out of spite, just because we can. There's something, there's something tragic about that, isn't it? Is, I mean, is, I think about that in terms of um, uncertainty. It's like we don't care for uncertainty, but we don't necessarily at the same time want complete certainty. You know, we want autonomy. We would not want our days to be a rerun sitcom that we know each and everything that's going to happen we wouldn't want that at all but yet we don't want the unpredictable uncertainty of of life which is obviously reality yeah the uh um i i sent you the article on um you know spiritual narcissism and i think it connects with just any sort of um self-improvement narcissism as well or something uh it made me think i was watching like one of these reality shows 
like a relationship reality show, which I watch too too much of, but I, I find it fascinating. Um, and the person on there kind of like, you know, makes some mistakes, you know, does a little mild version of some underground man type of stuff and is apologizing and, you know, making these, these promises. I will never do X, Y, Z again and, and all of this. And it, it makes me think of, um, yeah, you're not going to be able to keep those promises. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. part of the way forward, which is makes relationships so doggone difficult because it's, uh, there's like going to be mistakes. So there's going to be this thing of on both sides of, you know, obviously there's different degrees of, of maybe mistakes. I'm not necessarily talking about infidelity and, you know, some extreme stuff, but yeah, there, there's going to be some mistakes in this idea of we read something or do some, some self-improvement and feeling that, you know, there won't be hiccups along the way. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's complete nonsense. You know, um, I've, I've actually, uh, after I read that article, article you sent me, I was thinking about this too, like how we sort of put labels on things all the time. You know, like I, I went, I did engin- uh, an engineering degree and I remember my first year I was looking apart at, I was looking ahead at, uh, the, uh, year five students thinking like, God, these people are so, so smart. Right. And I was looking at like the professors, like, man, like these guys, these guys are engineers. Right. And then right, right before I went up on stage to get my degree, I remember thinking, I don't feel anything like the people that I thought I saw when I was a first year student. And what I guess what I realized at that stage was I was sort of looking forward to this period where I would become an engineer only to realize that you never really become an engineer. You only become an engineer on paper. And to abstract that out, you never really become enlightened, really. Like you you can go take a yogi class, you can go take a meditations class and you can get your meditation certificate. But that's a label. That's an that's something that we are socially constructing. You never really become enlightened. As far as I can tell, the only real enlightenment is realizing that there is no damn enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> right? May maybe uh Maybe a topic for for next time, but maybe some brief thoughts. Um, Anthony DeMello, a book that I that I like, uh, Awareness. He talks about like the second you label something, you lose it. You know, second the second you try to become enlightened, it's gone. Like the second you, I'm going to be, you know, the best engineer. You know, it's it's gone. Like, what do you think about this idea of? Um, I don't I don't know. It's it's a bit strange to me this idea of not like grasping, you know, this idea of not maybe having goals. And I know there's a fine fine line. It depends what it is, but yeah, any any thoughts there? Yeah, goals is an interesting one. I've been I've been really thinking about this and I'm still sort of conflicted about it because I think I think when you're young and you haven't really accomplished much, uh, accomplished much, I think you really need to set some goals. And like, you need to achieve something. I think everyone needs to do that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. But for me, one of the first things I achieved was I became proficient at playing the guitar. Hmm. Now it didn't matter that it was the guitar. It could have been the piano. It could have been a sport. It could have been something. The point is, is that as far as I was concerned, I've mastered it. And I think to do that, you have to like set goals you have to say, I'm going to learn the G chord. I'm going to learn the D chord. And that sucks. Like it's no fun learning how to play a G chord, right? The fun comes in when you know three or four uh, chords and you can actually play a song. But before that, you have to set goals. You have to say, listen, I I just got to do this. There's something on the other side of this and I have to get to this and it's going to suck. And you have to just gruel, just get through it. And then over the years, you learn a bunch of chords, you learn a bunch of songs and you've hopefully reached a level of proficiency at it. And I think it's only after you've actually learned that process that you can transcend the process. And that's where it comes into enjoying the process. And this is what I, you know, I hear fitness experts talk about this fitness people online all the time. You have to learn to enjoy the process, but it's like, dude, you're, you're a professional bodybuilder. 
like you've mastered something. I personally don't think that you can teach someone who hasn't really achieved something to master the, to, to enjoy the process. I think that's something that comes after you've, you've become proficient at something. And so now the things that I do in my life, for example, like the podcasting, I don't, I don't set goals. I just, I, I engage and I enjoy the process, but that's only because I've unlocked, so to speak, this mode of being, you know, that's, that's really interesting. It might, um, might have to be a next conversation to, to continue, (laughs) (laughs) but it, it is, um, I wonder if it's something, something along the lines of like, if there's no such thing as a sage, is there any such thing as mastering something mm. or just thinking in terms of um lifelong type of things which i th- it's a weird thing of uh i completely agree with you in the importance of whatever that particular hobby skill craft whatever it may be going down that to a certain level um is really, really important and can be done in, in different types of uh, levels. You know, you can go down now different, obviously, rabbit holes if that's what you, you choose to do and other things. But it is really um, it is really interesting. At a certain point, you realize how much you don't know, but you only realize that by getting very, very proficient at something. <laughs> Which is a a strange thing. Like in terms of the guitar, can you see, you know, the difference or the gap between you and maybe, you know, the top five in the world type of thing? Like you can, but you can't see that gap until you probably get to a certain point of like, wow, I really know how to do this. And it's like, whoa, that, that person is, uh, it's an it's an interesting thing, but yeah, it'd be it'd be an interesting topic to to follow follow down the rabbit hole in a in another conversation for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but to to wrap up this one, um, I'm curious to ask you in in terms of the the podcast, what you know, what gave you the initial motivation to to start this podcast, and what are you what are you trying to get after? Yeah. So, you know, I've really contemplated what the right answer for that was uh, for a long time. And I think the answer is overly simplistic, but I just wanted to do it. You know, like, I, you know, I, I thought about this and I've journaled about it. Like, like what's really driving me to do this? You know, is it, is it because I feel like I have something to offer the world is it because I feel like I'm really smart. It's like, well, no, that's just, no, I just wanted to do it. And I think, I think that's so important for people that want to go after something. It's like, what are you interested in? Like that should be how you decide what you do in life. Right. For me, I saw it as a learning experience. I saw it as a challenge. I, I didn't consider myself to be particularly good at articulating myself. I didn't really have a, sort of a, a soundboard to bounce ideas off of. And I think the internet, if you want to know what something think, what the the world thinks of you, put it on the internet, right? Because they, you're going to get people that love you. You're going to get people that hate you. And so I think that's great. But, but fundamentally, I saw it as a challenge. I genuinely wanted to do it. And it, it, it was also something that was sort of a natural extension of my personality because, you know, uh, for anyone that listens to my podcast, the topics, it's not like a structured course or anything, which is pretty common. Like all podcasts are like that. That's not unique to mine, but the topics that I talk about on a weekly basis, is really the things that I'm trying to figure out that week. You know, you talked about journaling, whatever you journaled about today. That's what I would pretty much talk about in my podcast episode. It's like, what am I trying to figure out? And, and that's, that's what's driving it. And so the podcast is just an extension of that. It's not like this new void that I've created. It's just putting it into a, into a format that's consumable 
and that people can tell me that they think I'm a complete idiot, which I do love, by the way, or people <laughs> tell me, hey, this idea really helped me. So either way, I like uh, I like it when people, you know, give me some feedback. So, Well, a lot of your episodes really taken, it's an interesting take on topics that are not necessarily all over every podcast. So I, I would say it is a bit unique um, and provides a lot of, lot of value. I have to ask a follow-up question though, in terms of that. So it's like you wanted to, did you have a feeling like you had to, like, what if you didn't, do you think there'd be a bit of a, you know, internal, uh, thing going on? That's a wonderful question, man. I guess, I guess it would depend on why I chose not to do it Mm. because I mean, and I'm, I'll put it right on the table. I've talked about this before. I had the same fears as most people do. I'm not immune to this stuff, right? It took me six months from having the idea to saying, yes, I'm going to actually do it. What are some of the things I've worried about? Well, what if my family makes fun of me? What if my friends make fun of me? What if uh, someone from work finds out? What if that one friend I had in high school that always said I would be nothing? What if he found out? Like, I had these feelings, right? As everybody does. But what's generating that? Fear. What's a core stoic value? What's a core stoic stoic virtue? Courage. And so I would say that if I let those fears stop me from doing it, yes, I would be the underground man. (laughs) (laughs) It it is an interesting point to, to wrap it back to that spite thing, though. It's like those thoughts, fears you know, that are, that are coming your way around this decision to do it can easily turn to spite without, you know, say a virtue of of courage and and courage doesn't exist without fear. Yes. And same thing in terms of our, our virtuous acts really don't exist without that possibility of, of, uh, of being the, the underground underground person (laughs) yep well this has been great man time uh definitely flew by uh i really appreciate it and hope we get to do it again man hey man thanks so much i enjoyed it uh like i said i gotta say i'm a fan you uh you get a lot of interesting guests on and i'm really i love the stuff you talk about on your podcast so uh it's uh it's an honor to be here truly thank you for listening i hope you found something useful if you're interested in learning more Every Monday, we share a short reflection with three timeless ideas to help you start your week with wisdom. You can subscribe at perennialleader.com. Until next time, be wise and be well.